Well, it's, uh, it's great to be here, and um, I really uh, was looking forward, actually, to being here on Friday morning. Those of you who normally come along on a Friday morning for coffee, I was due to be here on Friday morning, and, um, well, there was a real problem, real sad event over on the M18 on the way in, and um, it resulted in a whole load of traffic that being diverted, and I was driving down the A630, I think it is, um, on the way in, I'd managed to do, I think it was about two miles in three quarters of an hour. I looked at the sign, it said nine miles to go, and it's 10 to 11. So I phoned Ian for about the fourth time and said, buddy, you need to get going over there because I am not going to make it. Um, the really appreciated response was, well, come back here on Sunday morning instead. So here I am, and uh, it really works out incredibly well, I think. Um, well, hopefully it does, because uh, we're right at the very end of looking through the whole of the letter to the Philippines. And uh, it's that our last week, we've done 25 weeks looking at the letter of the Philippines. We're on to 20, week 26, and it's just, if you like, uh, a helicopter overview of the whole of the book. And uh, it seemed to me that if we were just going to, if I'm just going to drop in for one, uh, one morning with you, what better way than perhaps to take a big overview of one particular book uh, and to see how it relates to us today. And that's one of the things that I think we've been, we've been realizing as we've been reading this, that although this letter was written uh, 2,000 years ago near enough, uh, it was written in such a way uh, which engages with uh, the church. It was written to a new fledgling church in a city called Philippi. But because it is the living word of God, it continually speaks uh, to every subsequent body of God's people. Every church. And so, although it was written all of that time ago, it still has a consistent message for us today. One of the great things uh, about reading about the start of the church at Philippi is you realise um, that it's so like so many of our churches. Um, I've got to say... Uh, I'm not from Yorkshire, I'm from Lancashire. Well, I'm not even from Lancashire, I'm a posh boy from Cheshire, so my wife tells me, because I was born on the Wirral, she was born in Liverpool, and Wirral's the posh bit, you know, because we say curry instead of curry. Um, and, uh, I, I'm, you know, Philippi is not like Rotherham, I've got to say. Philippi was a cosmopolitan, incredibly prestigious place to live. In fact, it, there's not many cities in the whole of the UK that could have claimed the prestige of Philippi. It was one of the in places to be outside of Rome. And yet at the same time, what we see in that really cool place to be, that city which is uh, right at the very pinnacle of the Roman Empire outside of Rome, a free city, uh, a special privileged place to be, one where it would have been kudos to live. We also see, like many of the great cities uh, of our world, we see a whole spectrum of different people. We see an incredibly uh, prosperous uh, woman coming to faith in Jesus. Her name is Lydia. 
And uh, she comes to faith in Jesus. She's a seller of purple cloth, which is, uh, she was in the right trade, but she was uh, a prestigious uh, businesswoman. We also see in this, within the same few, uh, chapter in the book of Acts, at the point where the church is established, the other end of the spectrum, a slave girl, somebody who was not free, somebody who was owned. I, I would say that within that, uh, all of us could say, yeah, I relate to something of that one way or the other. We might feel ourselves very independent. We might feel as though we've got life sorted out. We might feel as though everything's kind of organised and, and I'm that, that end of the spectrum. You know, I know where I am. Uh, and we realise actually, just like Lydia may be, life isn't quite so organised, life isn't quite so ordered. There is another impact that needs to take in, uh, place in my life, and that is the impact of Jesus. And the impact of Jesus makes a dramatic difference to Lydia's life. You might be at the other end of the spectrum and feel as though the way life has worked out, uh, I am not free, I am owned. Uh, I am not independent. There are situations going on in my life where I, I feel oppressed. And then that slave girl realises that there is liberty and freedom in Jesus. What a tremendous picture there. And then just so we don't think that it is all about uh, women, we find that the church is also opened up in that little cameo uh, of the beginnings at Philippi to a Roman jailer who is um, kind of, a, a, he's a guy, he's just, a, he's, he's a lad uh, and uh, he's just one of the boys and the last thing that he would ever think about is the idea of coming to faith in Jesus because he's independent in a completely different way. He's just a guy uh, and we don't need that. And he realises, actually, I do. And, and in that kind of triangle, that's, that, that gives us this spectrum that says to me, as I look at the way that is constructed in the Acts of the Apostles, that that picture of how the church is opened up at Philippi just covers everywhere. Just a lovely, fantastic picture that the church is made up of people from remarkably different backgrounds, remarkably different experiences, and incredibly different needs. And that is how it has always been. And that's how it is in this room this morning. And you might be coming along fairly regularly to church. You might just be just starting. You might have been a Christian for many, many years. Uh, you might look on and think, what is this Christian faith actually all about? What's it on about? You know, sometimes taking a big overview of a book like this is incredibly helpful because it can answer some of those questions in, in a fairly big picture way. We're not going to be spending a lot of time looking in real depth we're just going to be saying, what does Paul say to this church that's recently been established about life? What does he say to them? Well, the first thing we need to remind ourselves is that this isn't some cutesy little kind of letter that he writes. 
It's not a kind of, you know, a, a little bit of a missing you kind of thing. This is a, a, a letter in the middle of real life. Paul is at this point in time in a Roman jail. Uh, he is wondering whether the next day is going to be his last. Is it the following morning where they're going to come into his cell and uh, take him away for execution? As it turns out, it would appear as though it wasn't this particular imprisonment that resulted in his death, it was one subsequent. But he didn't know that. And he's writing to these Christians in this city, uh, in Philippi, he's in Rome, he's in prison, here's the reality, this is not a cutesy letter, this is about life in the reality of things that, at this point in time, not even any of us are experiencing. None of us are in prison. None of us are feeling as though, tomorrow I may die. But Paul is. And he's still able to write in the way that he does. In the 1999 film, Paul Thompson Anderson, Magnolia, I would not necessarily recommend that you go and watch it, it is a genius film, though. The, the, the language is horrific. The storyline is, is um, rough, <laughs> to say the least. But what a fantastic picture of human life. It's described in this way, the film Magnolia, an epic mosaic of several interrelated characters in search of happiness, forgiveness and meaning in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, and these different lives and different people just, just in this incredibly intricate way, kind of their lives come together. They touch each other. But all of these cameos of these different lives are, are asking the same questions in a film in 1999, that people have been asking from the very beginning of time. What is it about? I want meaning in life. What about forgiveness? What about happiness? Those three things this book touches on. We're going to dip into it and ask what does this letter say about meaning, forgiveness and happiness? Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21 says this. We're just going to pick out a few verses. If you like, they're key verses. Uh, turning points, if you like, in the way the book is written. He's writing to these Christians. He's in prison possibly about to die, and in Philippians 1.21 he says this, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Meaning in life. If we think about that just for a few minutes, just, just what does it mean to find meaning in life? Because I guess many people would say, if we think about religion, we think about faith, uh, and we think about the idea of an afterlife, and, and you almost get the idea that some people are saying, you know, I just, 
So let's get this life over with and get on to the next. You know, just want to get it out the way. Just want to get to the next bit. That is not what he says. He's not saying to die is gain without the first bit, which is for me to live, is Christ. I found now, in my life now, a meaning, a worth, and a value. For me to live today is Christ. That sounds a strange thing to say. But then I would suggest to you that every one of us in different ways are finding a level of dissatisfaction, discomfort in life generally. Even the most successful people. I was watching a program the other day. Um, Hugh Laurie, uh, uh, Fry and Laurie fame. Hugh Laurie is um, now one of the, I think he is the highest paid TV uh, actor in America. He's a British lad and he's, uh, he's over in America starring in a house and uh, just phenomenal. He's now achieved one of his life ambitions which is to produce uh, a, a music record. He's now playing and singing. He plays jazz uh, piano and sings. Uh, it's just, he's great, he's fantastic but he said this uh, I don't have a single complete show or movie or anything else that I look at and say, nailed that one. But endless dissatisfaction is, I suppose, what gets us out of bed in the morning. Isn't that incredible? Somebody who you would look at and say in human terms, boy, if they made it. They've got everything. I mean, I don't know about you, I'm not musical. I'm just, I'm not musical, I would never claim to be musical. Any kind of musical involvement is within four walls with nobody else in the room and that's my kind of, you know, that's me. But sometimes I look at people who are musical and think, I would love to be able to do that. Imagine he's growing up uh, as a young lad. All he wants to do is, uh, is play piano and sing. And, and it just doesn't work out that way. And then he makes it as an actor. And then he has the opportunity to reach one of his childhood dreams. And he says, I am still dissatisfied. There is something about trying to find meaning and worth and value just from within. So I want to ask the question. Why does Paul say Christ satisfies? How can Jesus satisfy? How is that? I think there's many ways, but at least one of the ways is this. There is a realisation, isn't there, for all of us, that no matter what we do, no matter what achievements we make, no matter what things we manage to succeed in, we find a level of dissatisfaction because we know it cannot continue. It will never be there for all of eternity. It can't stand uh, successful, 
continuously. Even the best things that we do, they don't last forever. But Jesus is forever. Everything successful that he ever achieved, everything that he is, he is eternally successful in that. He is eternally successful. And one of the things that the Christian faith says is, you know, but we can be in Christ. But by being immersed in Jesus, his success, his triumph, his victory, his eternal success, his eternal triumph, his eternal victory is mine. I no longer need to look inside of me for long-term success. In fact, if I carry on doing that, I will be eternally disappointed and dissatisfied. But when I look outside of me to him, I can say for me to live even today is Christ. It's all about him. I've laid down my life's dependence on myself. And I've grabbed hold of a dependence on a life which is so much superior to mine. For me to live is Christ. Day by day. That changes life today. But he goes on to say to die is gain. So even now it's great, he says. Now, he's in a Roman prison doesn't sound too great to me. And yet he's able to say, no, it is. Because even if this ends now, even if the satisfaction that I have found, which is outside of me and is in him, even if that ends now, there is more. To die is gain. Helen Keller, who died, I think, in about 19... 68, something like that. She was a a deaf-blind woman who came to faith in Jesus. She uh, was about 19 months, actually. She wasn't born deaf and blind. She had an illness when she was about 19 months, which resulted in deaf blindness. She was actually quite a bitter young woman uh, as she was growing up. And then she came to faith in Jesus. But she said this, Death is no more passing, no more, sorry, start again. Death is no more than passing from one room into another. But there's a difference for me, you know, because in that other room I shall be able to see. Wow. What troubles you? What troubles me? What ailments? Don't even just think physical. Look at the reality of what we are deep down inside. You know one of those things that you don't admit to anybody else maybe? But you know that you have to admit it to yourself. You know that you are, uh, or I am, rooted with selfishness. You know that I live with a deep insecurity or you live with a deep insecurity when no matter what people say to you, no matter how kind you read it in a way which is going to be negative, uh, you read it in a way which is self-destructive, 
That is what you are like. You are broken inside. I am broken inside. It might be physical. It might be Helen Keller who can say, the life that I live is broken physically. But you know, eternal life in Jesus is gain. Because no matter what the brokenness, it is resolved. You see, because being in Christ now, it is only a temporary preparation for what being in Christ eternally is going to be like. Imagine what it would be like To never respond to any comment in a hateful, destructive,